Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. We're in DragonCon in Atlanta, and what we are uh, doing is taking advantage of some amazing authors uh, they don't otherwise get a chance to see face-to-face. And today we've got Dr. Charles E. Gannon, who uh, friends refer to as Chuck. And so in this interview, I'll be calling him Chuck now that I've done the official introduction of his name. Dr. Charles Gannon is a distinguished professor of English, St. Bonaventure University, and was a Fulbright Senior Specialist in American Literature and Culture from 2004 to 2009. Now, what we're going to be talking about is the science fiction, and the, the science fiction he's written includes Hard SF Interstellar Epic, the Kane Riordan series, which is what I'm familiar with, set in his Tarrant Republic universe, nominated for three nebulas, two drag, three dragons now, four dragons. No, no. Four nebulas. Four nebulas. Right. Two dragons? Well, there's, so the two was part of last night? No, that was, uh, that was, um, no, that was a, for different. That's for a fantasy series. Got it. Okay, good. So still two dragons. This is for the, the Kane Orden series and winner of the Compton Crook Award. You know, along with about 50 other SF writers, such as le- one of our judges, Larry Niven, but also Ben Bova, who was a judge, uh, John Henry, Jack Armstrong, and Greg Bear, he is a member of SIGMA, the science fiction think tank, which advises intelligence and defense agencies in his role as a subject matter expert on advanced military defense intel concepts, he has been featured on the Discovery Channel, NPR, Fox, and a wide variety of other national media outlets. So welcome, Chuck. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Now, we last spoke when I first read, um, it was, I think, Fire with Fire. And now we're going to be talking about, at least when I'm newly familiar with is endangered species, but you've also come out with protected species or it's soon to come out. That is coming out in December. We're recording right now in the very early days of September. So they're releasing in very quick sequence right now. Yeah. And it was like two books in 2023, which is, uh, that's an, that's impressive just all by itself. Well, actually it'll wind up being three books because mission critical, which is an arc in the series, which sort of separates from the main line in book four, and then re- rejoins it in book seven, is, uh, came out in January. So wow. we have three in the, uh, in the universe in one year. That's a very productive year. Thank you. Yes. So now I've got various um, questions, one of which is, what comes first, your Sigma, your, um, your think tank, or the story? Because obviously they both, at least on the series I'm reading right now, they follow a similar uh, course. Right. Well, if, if the question is, am I a writer first or am I a consultant first? <laughs> I'm a writer first. Okay. Absolutely. As a matter okay, of fact, I'm a writer first, last, and, and for the foreseeable future. I mean, I'll do the consulting. I love doing the consulting. And in a lot of ways, it's, um, it allows me to bring some ideas to a place that hopefully is in the national and maybe even global interest. I'm not saying impact, but at yeah. least interest. Yeah. Um, and uh, and in the course of talking with people there, it sort of it gives me an opportunity to see what other people who are actually on the on the engineering tech research uh, R and D um, side of the the fence are thinking right now, which which is an interesting way to keep your finger on that pulse, which deeply informs, if you will, the the core heartbeat of uh, of my science fiction series. Absolutely. Now, 
How do you evolve your science? So like endangered species, they land on a, on a habitable, it just happens to be habitable, Not, maybe just doesn't happen, but it ends up being habitable. So how do you evolve your science so that it works? So that's a, uh, that's a, that's a question short in the asking and long in the answering, but I'm going to do my best to, to keep it to Go wave it. tops here. So we keep, this is important too, because we're talking to also writers that want to be able to hone their craft. So you succeeded in doing something and you make something which is like, ah, oh, come on to like, oh, okay. So, so, so spill it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll go with spill it. Okay. Uh, the, the reason, I'm going to go with a water metaphor, okay. and I'm going to stick with that water metaphor. And the reason I am is because a lot of it comes to me, uh, you've heard of drinking from a fire hose. Right. For me, it's like drinking from a tsunami, and then the storm surges follow. I don't really feel like I think of a lot of it. I just, uh, it, it's, um, it really, I feel like I'm channeling another place. Now, it's framed up front by the research I've done and the sort of serious decisions that have been made regarding it, it overwhelmingly my science fiction, it, it really is hard SF in that it obeys all the, the laws that are high confidence and for which we have a high confidence explanation, which is we, there are very few physical laws. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Karl Popper uh, who basically said the only knowledge is negative knowledge, which is once you have a theory and you disprove it now, you know that that theory, that law is not a law. But laws are, are in essence, almost, they are, cannot be completely proven because if, they are, if there's going to be an exception to them, you won't know because you're not around in all time, all places, and you can't see potential exceptions pop up. So I obey all the laws that have not yet been broken or, or still do, or, or still, you know, that, that seem to be fairly settled. But when you start getting into quantum elements or the, the edges of biotechnology and, and just understanding biota, there's a lot of open doors there. And for people who think there, there isn't, let me just throw this out. If there is life out there beyond our own, then it would be wildly unlikely for DNA to be the model of, if you will, information and growth, you know, uh, essentially that's how it's transmitted, that's how it's governed, that it should adopt the same structure. I mean, who knows if that is the case, it's going to be a very interesting universe because it means there's going to be a lot of places we can go and right away fit in. I think that is uh, wildly optimistic, which means that how the other building blocks that would be, if you will, the core, the, the, the if you will, the index and codex for how that life organizes itself we do, we haven't seen it yet we don't know it yet we can make potential models so the bottom line is when people say to me now nah, we're pretty much solved on that we're pretty you know einstein called it spooky action at a distance but we're saying we know what it is and my attitude is like no you don't exactly so so what i basically do is it, this is there's a reason for this apparently tangential prelude which is that for me i make those decisions up front regarding what is possible in the universe, what exists in the universe, things that don't. There are a lot of restrictions in the universe. It is very difficult, for instance, to go, and it's not faster than light, some call it that, but it's really superluminal, which means you get around the light barrier the same way when you think about it, that, that spooky action at a distance, uh, what they call electron or subparticle tunneling does it in your phone. That's how your phone works when you get right down to it. It's that's when the moment you get into the, the notion of the uncertainty principle and quantum entanglement, you are outside of the realm of where we have concrete answers. So I start from those basics and then I play with it. 
and uh, and that gets us to things that can sometimes look like magic. And if it sounds like I'm I'm being loosey goosey with that, well, remember what Clark's axiom is, which is that to any sufficiently non-advanced culture, the technology is of a sufficiently advanced culture will look like magic. So um, so all I'll say to people who see the series and say, like you say, ah, is that possible? The the answer is I'm not predicting the future, but I am projecting. And projecting for me means you take the, the possibilities that we haven't ruled out that are high enough that we see that we see natural examples for and play with those. So I stick by those rules no matter what I'm doing. And uh, that seems to have found um, found a readership. Absolutely. And one thing I want to be able to uh, continue addressing on a senior, because this is something I mean, I read a lot just keeping up with with the podcast. And in so doing, there's ways and means that authors have, have addressed these, you know, the common one is how do you deal with FTL, the faster than light? You know, what do they do? And and once you 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 made that statement at the uh, at the get go here of science, we don't know all the different permutations of things that can happen. And and we've pretty much I don't say we science has acknowledged or has adopted Einstein as gospel in a lot of of ways. And science has a history of adopting the current, you know, um, cutting edge as gospel, and it's gone back for, you know, since science began. I'm just curious how much you've, you know, you've, you've dealt with this, because a lot of writers grapple with this. You know, what do you, do you just automatically just say, like, Doc Smith with um, the Skylark Duquesne series, you know, all of a sudden he was in his garage, and then presto change oh, this 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 thing he discovered and it it's now FTL faster than light. It was just like science became magic, but then with that, then he was able to then use that as as his science. So that was one way to do it. And I got I love Doc Smith. He's the one that got me hooked on science fiction way back when. The Skylark and the uh, Lensman series, obviously. So what recommended recommendations do you have on that for writers how to do like how much do you really get into it and try to address the science of it as compared to making it something like what you just said there you know what what would be a formula or a way to go about doing that so they just don't copy dr charles e gannon but they have a means of doing it so not in any particular order because i don't have a checklist sure. in front of me at this minute um it's a, it's a, I would say in a way for me, it's been a lifelong endeavor uh, and it's the endeavor of being, uh, first of all, be aware of the history of science, be aware of the present, the, the, the present thoughts. You don't, I don't have a science degree. I don't have an engineering degree. I don't have anything like that. My degree was in first modernism was my master's. And I had a, for that, a, an RTF, a radio television film degree. And my doctorate was in, uh, was in American literature. It was in um, Rumors of War and Infernal Machines, uh, which, is, which is essentially how science fiction has impacted defense and, uh, and research and, ex and, and uh, fiscal deployment and vice versa. But so start, start with that, be voracious, be open-minded. If, if you find yourself accepting too many things too readily, you probably need to, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your soundboard right now and I'm thinking that whatever the, 
whatever the, the lever or the toggle is that would indicate a little more skepticism, I suggest moving it to the higher end of the board a little bit more. If you find yourself saying, no, can't happen, no, can't happen, no, can't happen, you want to back it off a little bit, which is to say, knowing a little bit about where science has been and where science is, I think will help any writer find what is for them a, a mix, that, that sweet spot between where are we, where have we been, and what do I want to play with? It's perfectly fine to say that, for instance, uh, maybe Einstein's wrong. Just be consistent with it. Understand what then you have to explain. That said, there's a guy by the name of Thomas Kuhn who talked about, his, he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. Structure of Scientific Revolution takes two, takes one predominant, more than any other model for this, which is sort of science fictional in its origins, even though the model really comes to an apparent end in the 1600s. What I mean by this is before Galileo, Copernicus, those guys, Kepler, all those guys, we have the, the Ptolemaic astronomy. It arises out of the court of Ptolemy back in the times of Pharaoh. It is a BC and it predicted the movement of the heavens with absolute clarity. You know, it was a, it was a remarkable uh, way of understanding the universe. For the time, it made certain forms of navigation absolutely possible. The problem was the great majority of the mechanics that explain it were just dead wrong. It was a correlation without an understanding of causation. I tend to think that we live amidst that. I would tend to think that for any person who wants to write real science fiction, that's an important thing to bear in mind that things can look like a lot of what's called the standard model of quantum physics seems to be very consistent, very coherent as an explanation unto itself. Yeah, well, so was Ptolemaic astronomy. But then, of course, you know, these guys, Copernicus and Galileo come along, they get telescopes that show the moons of Jupiter, and they say, you know, the whole idea that Earth is at the center of things is probably kind of foolish, and all the things that we have to, that, Ptolemaic astronomy had to invent sort of very convoluted explanations for why they happened. Suddenly you have this paradigm, and that's actually one of the places we get the term paradigm shift for, because he talks about that moment from, if you will, Ptolemaic understanding of the universe to the Copernican Galilean understanding as a paradigm shift, because really basically says, we're not the, the center of all things. We are actually going around the sun. We go from what's called a geocentric model of the universe to a heliocentric model of the universe. It also, it also gravity, spheres, all that sort of stuff grows up out of them. Why are they spheres? Because they're regular objects. Why is that important? Because the laws of gravity will suggest that large objects will collect evenly from all directions at the same time. What does that mean? It means you're creating a sphere. So, and if you think that it's just science and science fiction, the reason Galileo went to trial was because the church's model, the Catholic church's model of the universe was Ptolemaic, which when you think about it is an irony unto itself. But, you know, basically Galileo was putting his finger in other people's rice bowls, very, very powerful people's rice bowls. And, uh, and this is, these are changes that I think it's, there, there is no way to ask too many questions about them. One of them or some combination of them is going to probably pave the way to whatever the next paradigm shift in science is going to be. And uh, I don't know that I'll be around to see it, but I'm certainly, 
I'm certainly laboring in those trenches, and I recommend any serious science fiction author. If what you're saying is I want to do science, not science fantasy, you know, not not you know, if if capes are involved, be careful. Uh, but <laughs> but um, if that's what you want to do, I, I would suggest that as considering some elements of what I was just speaking about as a mindset as you go forward. Awesome. So I'm definitely myself of the view that anytime someone says, okay, we've reached our point B of knowledge and evolution on science, I immediately go, you know, my hackles come up and go like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, that's, that's, it's an incredible um, invalidation of science, of, of the human intellect and the, the desire to look and see, because there's, I mean, if you just take a look at the straight math, if you're gonna go, if you want, you know, let's take the, you know, the, the vector of, of math, what are the odds or what's the percentages of us being the only ones here? Now you're going back to the, the earlier philosophies, which, you know, the Ptolemaic, you know, it's like, no, it's, we're the center and we be it, you know, there can be only one. And, and, and that's that just to, to, to break in on what I, is a really, a really important point, wonderfully expressed, is that I think in addition to it being our turn, it's also... It's easy to say, we talk about the laws of physics. That's misleading statement one. We have very, very, very high confidence hypotheses. They're a very different thing. Bearing that distinction in mind helps. It also keeps us a little more humble. There is a sort of innocent arrogance in saying, the moment you say, I know, mm, you, you can know what goes on in your own head, usually. And you and but but we have all sorts of things like psychotherapy, which tells us you may not have a conscious grasp of everything going on in there driving you forward that you may think in the moment you have. So no and knowledge is a big absolute statement, and I think it shuts down exactly what you're talking about the sort of the sort of big scope progression and and don't lock yourself off. And there's a, it's connected to human hubris in a lot of ways. Yeah, and that's that the also the adage a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. Yeah. And people get so stuck in their myopic uh, perception of life, they can see they can see themselves as having a lot of knowledge, when in the bigger sphere, that uh, it's really a little bit of knowledge, and maybe it's just a microscopic bit of knowledge compared to what's out there. And right now, when you, with all the stuff that's happening with all the current, I did interview somebody yesterday, on who's one of the top ufologists um, on the planet, and. Um, He's been doing, he's been flown to D.C. and meetings with, with Congress and top officials at the Pentagon on this subject, you know. And it's, it's been no, 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 no. And all of a sudden, things are changing where you can't hide anymore. Even though you've got all the lasers and you've got uh, all this the technology that they're using right now to make, to, to um, simulate you know, UFOs or dragons or whatever else in the sky, there's still the other stuff from the, the pilots who just, no, look at, I, here's what I've got here and I couldn't keep up with it. You know, so you have that now and they can't put the, keep the lid on that. So the whole thing that we're the only ones out there, it gets harder and harder and harder. And given that they exist, that means technology's so much vaster than what we've got here. So to go into, again, you, you know, the hubris of, you know, were the well and i think also you know when you and i were, were growing up there was a 
There was a very, very large segment of the scientific community that thought that planetary formation, as is evidenced in this system, is rare to almost unique. Well, we've, I think, closed the books on that pretty right. well. I mean, we've gone away from merely radio telescopy in, in, in inference of these things to be able to now actually image some of them. So it's kind of like, well, you know, I think maybe this planetary model, while, it is, while it's given us some surprises, there's some basic truths there. And the moment you get into that, and the moment we've seen how much, how widespread organic, not life, but organic molecules are, which are the building blocks of life, it gets harder and harder to sustain this. There is no one else there. It might be rare. Intelligence might be supremely rare, but that doesn't mean it isn't out there. It hasn't been out there. It hasn't left marks, and that that doesn't create um, opportunities of an ex of, of extraordinary scope. And and I'm the person who says, when you find me that that piece that doesn't fit the rest of the puzzle, that is the next. That is one of those is going to be the gateway to the new path to the next model, the next paradigm. So uh, I'm, whereas most people who have a, a deep-seated investment in science and engineering and, and, and theory the way it exists, it's understandable that they're on the, they tend to be on the naysayer side. Yeah. Without even realizing it, I think a lot of the times, they just, they don't want to see changes that disrupt their, that disrupt their lives, invalidate perhaps a lot of their careers' work. They'd like to feel their meaningfulness has been and will be preserved. I I I don't labor under those uh, under those difficulties. Yeah, well, like the Sistine Chapel, there were books written about why Michelangelo painted such dark scenes, and then someone decided to wash a little bit of this suddenly on the side and found out it was all the soot from the candles Candle, burning yep. for centuries that yeah. made it all dark and they cleaned it off and it was bright and brilliant. It was like so much for that knowledgeable, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. It, it totally fits that, you know, that point. But one thing that was brought up yesterday when I was speaking with, with this gentleman was um, prior to what, 1400, 1600, there were no flying objects. You know, Galileo had his idea of, of the flying you know, device, but it didn't fly. It was, it was a picture that he, that he drew. So when you see Michael, uh, not Michelangelo, uh, not Michelangelo, it was uh, uh, one of my, Gallo, no, no, it, it's uh, it begins with D. Why can't I think of Da Vinci? His name? Sorry, da Vinci. Da Vinci, yeah, yeah. da Vinci is the guy who really sort of did the deep dives into them. Yeah, yeah. So he had the picture of them, but they didn't, they didn't exist. They were just sketches and, and mock-ups. So anything you see on the earlier, you know, even in the Christian, you know. Um, all the, the photo, not the photos, the, the picture that you see there and the depictions and stuff with these flying things in the air. There was nothing that was, that would have, would have made that. And so I'm not talking about the angels. I'm talking to these other orbs and whatnot that are, that are in the sky. How does one explain that? So, you know, you've got it right now. Say, okay, well, that's, you know, it's already been parked saying, you know, well, um, he painted dark on the top of the Sistine Chapel because that was what it was instead of just looking to see the simplicity of what really happened. So I think we're going to find more and more of that type of stuff, but you do have people who are invested in their own science that if they lose that, then now they just got beat up by cogs wheel cogs instead of space loose rockets, you know, from the Jetsons that we were growing up with. So um, now you're... One thing also on the philosophy that I saw in your 
Well, first of all, did you finish answering that question? Or? Oh, absolutely. Okay, good. Long ago. All <laughs> right. Okay, good. Now, your philosophy seems to be that uh, planets are seeded with life forms. At least it comes across like that where, you know, some of these different places and like even where we are right now in endangered species, you know, these, you know, those life forms that's there, it's like, is that, and that's, there's nothing that disproves that. It just, it definitely runs into a problem with Christianity with that concept, but the seeding of, of, of planets, you know, with life forms for them to be able to grow up and, and just to, to create how to, one way to expand um, uh, an intergalactic, you know, empire would be something like that too. What's your take on it? Because it comes across that way. So, so I, I, I don't, my books are about the questions I ask and the questions I want to ask. So having a take on it is, my take on it is, it's a really worthwhile question to ask. <laughs> and therefore, what I do is I apply the same sort of rigor to it. Uh, one of the things that, I, you know, we talk a lot about, and we, this came up in a panel the other day, deep space, but we don't talk about deep time that much. And that's not just a clever, that, that's not just some sort of clever spin on a term. It's really something we need to think about, by which I mean, as you're, as you're taking a look what's going on in endangered species, there's a couple of things that become evident. Uh, there are, there are uh, mammals that we, we see traces of mammals that did not overlap human existence. We look at several different stages of, of human evolution, or at least branches in the family tree of man, which seem to be present in one form or another. The, the reason I mention that, I frame that up with the term deep time, is that we, for instance, we think about terraforming. We think about that almost entirely as a sort of mechanistic process. We, uh, we go and we, 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 we drop machines or we, we seed it with fast-working bacterial forms or this, that, or the other thing. This only is because, once again, we see through the lens of our own existence, but now not in terms of looking out into the heavens and, and seeing the whole world organized around us, but we, we tend to think, and it's not just that we see out, look into the universe and say everything out there is going to be DNA. We're looking out into the universe and saying most things, the meaningful frames of reference probably stop at lifetimes of 100 to 110 years. And even that's a pretty aggressive reach. But what if in our coming stages of evolution and our coming stages of medicine, we're looking at one of the things we see about at least our intelligence is a, an immense drive to expand lifespan. Longevity, yeah. Methuselah. Methuselah and beyond, if you yeah. will. Whether we do that through, through however we do that. Whether it's, whether it's by we actually live longer lives or we find the means. I mean, there are all sorts of things. People say, cold sleep, that can never happen. Well, first of all, cold sleep doesn't necessarily mean freezing. And if you take a look very carefully at what's done in my system, temperatures are maybe taken to below 32 degrees, i.e. zero Celsius. That doesn't mean there's freezing. The Arctic cod freeze solid. In, well, they don't freeze solid in the ice, but they're frozen in the ice of the Arctic. How do they survive? Because as the cold comes on, there are organs in their body which begin to create glycol compounds in their blood. What that essentially is, is their blood now has antifreeze in it. So although they freeze, the fluid in them does not crystallize. Crystallization is what ruptures cell walls. That's what kills brains. That's what kills every cell in your body. 
So if you can do that naturally, if that can be a process that's induced, which is how it's done in, in my science fiction, it is an induced process. It takes a while for it to sort of perfuse through the body so that all the cells are protected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if, now let's, let's just take that to the, let's use that not as how it's being done, but as an indication of how important it is to us. When you start thinking about it, you could essentially wake up and go to sleep for one year out of every 10. If you think about that, that really creates a very different view and experience with time. And if the further thing is, no, but I want to maintain consciousness over an entire, I want the sum of my consciousness not to be bounded in terms of a century, but in terms of a millennia or more. And I mean, people may be saying, okay, he's gone off the rails. I'm not even talking about humans here. I'm talking about a life form which may have a great deal, great deal more longevity. We have them on Earth. We have 400, 500 year old creatures, turtles, I believe. Yeah. A certain, uh, I think it's been suggested regarding possibly some cetacea, sharks, a whole bunch of stuff. They, they just, you know, they're built, they're built for the long haul. So when you get to the point when you start thinking that way, now I'm coming back to terraforming. Why throw machines at it? Why throw sudden events at it? Why not seed it with very, very basic, seed a planet that's, I'm going to call it a brown world, not a green world, but a world that has just enough biological activity, but it's not getting a jump start, or you're catching it at an early phase. You seed it with your stuff. Is it, are, there, are there space ethicists that would say that this is essentially a form of invasion? Yes, there are. Is it? Maybe. Do the, do the microbes on that planet really rate as, as, a, you know, as, a, as a basis of a crime, an invasion? No. It, not, not in that sense. Um, I'll leave the ethics of changing the universe to somebody else, but I'll simply say you wouldn't be here to make the argument if it wasn't for millennia of your ancestors saying the environment needs to change so we can survive in it. Um, we, we exert environmental change all the time. I'm Responsibility sorry. is the issue, not a prohibition. Um, but what, I, what I'm saying is that therefore, all these planets and endangered species, if you go back and you have read, for instance, the really pivotal work to read, if you, reading the four drops in the keys. Book five shows you that before there were the Dornani, who are the apparently dominant intelligence, who are, so, are, are sort of in a declining cultural state, there was something before them called the elders. Right. But before the elders, apparently, there was something else. Now you're asking, how long has this been going on? And at that point, if, if, you have, if you have a species that is able to travel, even if faster than light travel isn't possible, think about that for a second. Slower than light travel. What if it takes you, let's say, uh, 40 years to get to Alpha Centauri, 4.27 light years away? Well, if you live for thousands of years, you're going to have a culture that deals with time passage differently anyhow. Right. And therefore, there's nothing that particularly stands in your way of beginning a, a, a fairly aggressive, just from our standpoint, slow-moving colonization program. Why would they do it? My, my personal feeling is, think back to what the, the thesis is here. If biological elements actually do a better job of truly transforming a planet for it to be what you want, then actually we, humans, other species with promise that, because intelligence suggests high environmental change for good and for bad but it really changes things quickly you put in the right mix and then later on you see that you're probably accelerating um 
the the uh, the creation of worlds, sustainable worlds, um, actually very quickly, certainly by by their standard. And I'm going to draw a parallel for anybody who's familiar with with the the various forms of cloning we're looking at. I'm going to call it the Gattaca model and the CRISPR model. The Gattaca model is, no, I'll go with the CRISPR model first, which is DNA strand, cut out the parts that are malfunctioning that you don't want, that you'd like to improve, da-da-da-da-da. thing is it doesn't pass along. I mean, it, it can, but it, it might not. Right. It will, it will make things better, and you can definitely retro, retro you know, essentially retrogenetically engineer, you know, diseases and, and things like that out of, but what I'm going to call the Gattaca model is you take... You, you, you get the two gametes, you clone them essentially in a Petri dish. Notice you're using completely biologic, no interventional methods, and you, and you, until you get a thousand pairs, and then you pick the best one. What you're doing is you're preserving the power of the evolution, of the evolutionary arc, which is millions of years of, quite frankly, brutal refinement in a natural selection environment, and you pick the one that has the least, you know, the the, the greatest uh, correspondence to longevity, lowest disease impact, lowest congenital physical issues. What I'm suggesting is, if you have long enough lived species, that they may be using the Gattaca approach to world to terraforming or world forming as they define it. I know it's a long answer, but it's a way of saying to writers who are thinking about it. You can, you can play with stuff and you can throw it out there. But usually if you look hard, if you want to stay hard SF, there's a, there's a route from where we are to how we might get there. And if you think that there, there might be a universe that has had intelligences in it, I'm sitting there thinking, how do you not ask a question like this? Right. And that's good. That's good. Because that's what... Your, your, sci your hard sci-fi, it's... Um, I mean, I've read a lot of it. And yours is for me, some of the hardest sci-fi, because I, I have to clear more words reading your books than, than pretty much anybody else. But, but there are no briefing room sequences. That's it, for sure. It, it's all taking place in real time, real conversation, I know, I know, real action. It is, right. I know, yeah, but when people, No, the only reason I say that is the moment you hear hard science fiction, you think of, well, as we all know, Dave, uh, I don't do that. Right. <laughs> and no, John is here to tell you if I do or I don't. No, he doesn't do that. Um, what, because like Larry Niven on, on Ringworld, okay? Yeah great book you know what he's done there and he's got his science on it and when he came out with it he definitely had his fans challenge him on stuff and he made tweaks to it you know on um later later years based upon stuff but he tried to make it really good and we've had um hal clement one, of, one of our judges he was amazing he was a grandmaster of science fiction just one of the nicest guys and he talked about his science that he wrote and on the planet he said i got the science wrong and it was really pointed out to him with no shame on the part of the fans you know pointing yeah. out his his mistakes on it. he said if you're gonna write hard science fiction you've got to have your science right so i would like you to talk about that because i've not seen in any reviews any comments people challenging your science i haven't either <laughs> which, is, which is great which is a testament to your writing so um anybody that does like the science fiction that is that is really strong on its science or believable science, then Charles Gannon is an author you absolutely do want to read. But can you address that a little bit there? Because I think sure. that's important. And 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 once again, it gets into it, there's a there's a writerly aspect to that, which is um, 
in this case, I would say talking about Larry Niven, talking about others who rarely get their science critique. The most you can say is we got perspectives on things that, that we're being invalidated all the time because science can overtake us. I try to be careful about that, and I think other people have been careful about that and have done wonderful work is Alistair Reynolds. I think, uh, I think Greg Benford. I think, um, uh, why, am I, why am I not thinking of his name right now? Werner Vinge. Uh, these are folks who, uh, they know their science, and they play inside the rules, and yet they manage to, to tell great tales. And, um, and, and, and yet, even though it's very far-reaching and far-looking, still, um, the, the jury's out. You know, most of, there's very little in their stuff which has been disproven. I, and I, you know, I learn. I learn yeah. from those perspectives. Uh, the one thing that I would, that, that I'm more frequently, I think, probably, uh, people say, well, why is there so much action? My attitude is, the best ideas in the world will lie fallow and undiscovered if they are not also exciting. I guess as somebody can probably tell, uh, as I talk about this, I'm pretty excited. I have a yeah. smile on my face yes. all the time because at the core of everything I do, if, I, if people say, what's your life drive? Well, my, my career drive and certainly my life dream is to create worlds and tell stories in them, but even be underneath that when it comes to other aspects of my life. I love to travel. I love to new, learn new things. Why is that? Because my single strongest drive is to answer the question, what's over the next hill? That's awesome. Yeah. And that is, if you feel that in yourself, that's a really, that is a great, that is a great writing impulse to begin with, but it is particularly useful to a science fiction writer. A fantasy writer will, you're asking still that Heinleinian question of what if, but the number of what ifs are probably taking, you don't, fantasy doesn't have to, it can constrain itself to, to in some ways known, mostly known physics, but it doesn't have to in order to be able to set up oppositions or fusions between things and say, well, if it happened that way, what would we discover about ourselves? Sometimes it is, fantasy can be just as good a mirror back on us, if not better than science fiction, because science fiction has to obey some of these laws and therefore you don't have the same freedom of setting up what I would say the optimal social Gedanken exper thought experiment. Um, so, so I would say that, um, that for me, that idea of wanting to go over the next hill, but to not invalidate the map yeah. that I did the best job I could with the map is very important. And I think part of making sure they're still out there is also making them fun. That, that does mean peril. That does mean, that does mean danger that, that can mean, you know, Anything that changes our world, our understanding of the world in a very big way is going to have economic and defense impacts. And that means that it's, if, if somehow it's just scientists butting heads, you have not told the whole story yet. The social story, the way that that is going to impact the story of humankind is going to be when it starts getting back to those rice bowls, when it starts getting back to how we live. Uh, culture conflicts that could arise that don't ex exist now. Culture yeah. conflicts that are that are 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 essentially made null. There's, for instance, there is a great deal of bigotry in the in the 22nd wor century world. We haven't seen much of it yet because it's not the stuff we recognize. Race has largely been settled. Uh, sex, gender choice, largely settled. Uh, if you if you have a uh, if you if you sort of rise an eyebrow at that, that almost marks you as sort of like, well, you need to get with the program or. Find your own private Idaho. 
Um, but there is, and it actually has to do with genetics, and it has to do with, by this time, if you're in a wealthy country, the Gattaca, if you, to go back to what I said earlier in this podcast, the Gattaca, the literally human Gattaca method is expensive, but really good mm -hmm. because it doesn't throw flaws anymore. And the thing is, yeah, does our, does our reproduction throw flaws? Yeah. But a thousand combinations, you're going to be able to pick one with minimal or zero flaws. This is expensive, but it's really effective. So what's the cheaper opportunity to that? The CRISPR method. You go in and you cut. You, you adjust DNA, whether via, you know, via microsurgery, which really means essentially either nanites or, or, or specially tailored microorganisms that do the work for you. Really sharp knives. Uh, yeah, really sharp, <laughs> really small knives. Molecular <laughs> knives with the length of one mo molecule. Um, and, uh, and so this is less expensive. It can be applied to a broader population base that much more rapidly. What about the parts of the world that can't afford either one? If they want to compete, maybe what they do is they go to upgrades, but they're already poor, so they can't probably afford cybernetic upgrades. What does that mean? Well, how do most people buy a car or a house? They lease it or they mortgage it. And in this case, you're mortgaging yourself. We give you this thing, we get to tell you certain things to do. And if that's the case, how would anybody probably support that? They build in a backdoor code. There is in the history that hasn't yet come forward because it hasn't become a primary issue. It is, it is mostly settled, but it will prove not to be settled in the future, in the future books, which is there was something called the epidemic. Notice it's EMP, epidemic. That's because between viruses, backdoor codes, and electromagnetic pulses selectively, a lot of these individuals were compromised taken out or forced to do their mega corporate master's bidding. And this became the basis of the new prejudice. If you came from those parts of the world, it's not your color anymore. It's not your language. It's none of that stuff. It's, is there something in you which is a ticking time bomb, which makes you somebody I can't trust? You could, you, might, you could become my friend and you could get an order to put a knife in my back. I could have you in my military and you might be carrying a virus in your head, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is, and of course humans don't think the logic of it. We, we gut feel. So there, and we see certain people from certain places where we know the economic conditions are that backdoor into the new bigotry. That's the, when I say there are, you know, there's that saying that, that, there's, that every story has been told, yes, but John Gardner, a wonderful writer, and he wrote a book called On Moral Fiction and uh, Becoming a Novelist, he makes the great point that there are perpetual tales that we tell again and again, but, they, but each generation has separate challenges and issues that makes the retelling fresh and pertinent. And in seeing the different challenges that generations have, we build a kind of human history that is not the one in the books. The one in the history books that they write. History books are written by the victors. But in fiction, we very often get that sort of generation by generation slow change. How did things change in people's minds? And this is another opportunity for science fiction writers that I can't stress highly enough. A lot of science fiction is fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's, you, it may be about machinery, but for me, stories are about people. Yep. They're about, and, and if they, people are worried right now about AI writing, my attitude is this. I've seen AI do a lot of great stuff. Here's what I haven't seen it do. It doesn't make me cry. It doesn't make me laugh. 
It doesn't elate me. It doesn't fill me with a sense of wonder because it's AI is still pattern recognition and following. And that means that it's, the, why, why does a joke work? Because you don't see the punchline coming. That's why the joke isn't funny a second time. AI has no ability to surprise us that way. Good. And, that, and that's where, where I think that both writers, writers who are really good, who, are, who, who zoom on the notion that it's never about the machines and the bolts, it's about human beings in that situation, and what the long, it's both the short arc and the long arc is, but, but that it's, uh, you, it is about those, you know, it's, it's across all of time, in yeah. a sense. It's interesting you bring it up, because that was back in the, uh, in the 40s, that's when Street and Smith brought in authors, including Aaron Hubbard, to take science fiction, which was about the bolts and the nuts and the spaceships and the ray guns, and add people to it because it was it was a very stultified genre, and by adding the people to it, it totally changed uh, the direction of it. And one thing too, I don't know how familiar you are with any of Elwin Hubbard's science fiction, but he um, one book he wrote called To the Stars, published in 1950, and it was about the then new Einstein theory, which Lorenz Fitzgerald came out with is, as speed approaches the speed of light, time approaches zero. And the book opens up, at, you know, space is deep, man is small, and time is a rel is relentless enemy. So he published it then. We re-released it. That's Elron Hubbard at his best. Yeah. Right there, right there. Yeah. And uh, By the way, what you just heard, if, if you go forth with that, writers, you're going to be starting from a great place. So Thank you. Roll that back. Listen to it again. <laughs> yeah, with... We re-released it in the early 2000s, and I was like, um, we got a star review in PW, Publishers Weekly, and then Entertainment Weekly said, well, we want to review this too. And I went like, <gasps> you know, because what are they going to do to it? And it got an A minus, and it said, this, this story holds up just as well now as it, in 1950. And it's um, about the, um, you know, the, the, they're not fast and light, they're just up that point. And so when these, it's called the Hound of Heaven, and so going out there uh, into space, right, every time they come back, they may be aged a year, but the Earth aged yeah, sure. however many decades, yeah. and so you come back and your people are no longer there, right? You know, yeah. And but then he also gets into how politics, religion, everything changes. They go and come back, and when they go out with looking for this science, because they need this fuel. If they come back with it, they've long since gone past that. They're now to a new level of science, and that fuel means nothing. So it's a whole change of, of what happens. But it's very interesting, too, just as with that happening, because we do evolve. You, you, you lose that perspective because we're here right day by day by day. But if you stand back and look at just how much we've changed in my lifetime, you know, um, when I started shaving, I was taught by a friend who used a straight edge, you know, the razor, you, you have a strop and yeah, you yeah. do it and then, then you have... Lather it up in the coffee cup. Exactly. And then um, I was taught that because that, that, at that point it was, it was fun. I wouldn't learn how to do that. But then it was the Wilkinson, but it was just the straight, it was a, a razor blade that you put in there. And then when you're done with it, in the medicine cabinets, there's a little slit, which yeah, you're like, what is yeah, that? And you put the razor when it's done, you slide it in there and it just slide into the, between the rafters of your home. And now you've got the, then you, that was the big revolution of two blades and then four blades and five blades. And you don't, you lose perspective how much have changed. Like I used to go out, you know, you'd have your, your one phone, which most kids don't even know what you do. If you pick it up, okay, call somebody with a dial. 
and you go outside and you play. There's no such thing as cell phones and going out there. You come back when it's dark, you know, don't be late. And you lose perspective of like change, how much we've actually changed in the last you know, century. And there's, that's, the, that's the stuff we see. Then there's the fact that people who are listening to this right now, a lot of them are going to be listening to it at their computers. Some will be listening through their phones. We have in that opportunities, we have, we have promise and perils. What's the promise? You are, all of you folks out there are consuming more information at a higher rate across a broader form of media and soon, and I think even more as virtuality is coming along than ever before. Uh, you are loaded with experience. On the other hand, what, there's a cost. There, you know, there's no such thing as the free lunch. What it is is that most of the things that have changed have changed how long we have or are even that the time we have or even desire to reflect on things. Reflection is a very, very valuable process. This is not me about to wag my finger at the world. It's simply, it's actually moving towards a, a, a measurable point. The brains of children now are different. Not necessarily structurally, but, but in the same way that you go into the gym, you work your muscle, you see the change, right? Yeah. Same thing happens with neural pathways, particularly in the brain. We are activating a different set of pathways than conventional book reading does. And, and frankly, if, if you want to actually be more of the, mix more of the old brain to the new brain, here's a, because I was in, I was in uh, communications research for a while, reading Jack and Jill, even if you've read it 30 times before, activates parts of your brain far more, far, far more than the most complicated documentaries you will watch on television. Television is associative and you absorb. The mere act of reading says, I see these squiggles, I have to turn them into meaning. Even if the meaning is not particularly challenging, the work, the pharmaco or biokinetic work that's being done in your brain actually keeps pathways alive. That's when they, for instance, all the studies show that if you want to retard aging, you want to play actually number, number puzzles are good, but also word, word puzzles and fairly sophisticated word puzzles because that cuts a different set of pathways. We are evolving. If we go on this way and if this most successful people are the ones who have the brains best suited to this, this is a sort of brain version of natural evolution. We, who are the, who are the, why did we survive compared to our early, earlier hominid ancestors? Whole bunch of reasons. Limb length probably had something to do with it. Uh, there, are, there are a whole lot of theories, but the bottom line is we're here and there are a dozen major branches that are not. Right. And the ones that were here were the ones that ultimately, probably when you get down to it, whatever the issue was, we were the best tool users. Well, now that that was a that was a physical thing connected to a clever brain, tactically speaking. But now it is your brain that is both the idea driver and the muscle, and whatever that brain looks like is probably the one that's going to have the wealth that tends to attract mates, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't want to lose that old stuff, and I actually kind of think that's important, yeah, because the bottom line. So I know I'm going on here, but that's good. The thing is, knock all. Take an, take an EMP. All of the stuff you are evolving towards has just gone dark. If you have let those other abilities lie fallow, you will rue the day. The best organism, I think, going forward into future is a balanced organism. 
we we need to understand that there's a potentially addictive quality to this mm -hmm. and the, and there's a, it's there's nothing wrong with liking your ice cream eating ice cream all the time we know what that does and i would say we stand at a sort of speciate uh, uh inflection point of decision a little bit like that awesome Okay, so now we're getting to the, the tail end of this uh, interview. So I'd like to discuss briefly now the book that sparked this whole interview to begin with. Yeah. But I got what I wanted out of it because I really wanted to be able to talk to you about your science because I haven't had a lot of hard science fiction writers. I've had, interviewed Larry. We talked about Ringworld, but there hasn't been a whole lot more about it. So this has been a real treat. So about Riordan and... He's not a superhero, but is he like somebody? I actually know people who put him to shame. Uh, one of the, what I mean by that is, uh, you're absolutely right. He's not a superhero in any. The, the one, the he has a couple of talents. His talents is that like making he is, things go right. Uh, which is which is probably because he he is tenacious. He is a bit of a polymath, but that doesn't mean he's not a polymath like he actually has 19. He's not a Doc Savage with 19 different degrees or something like that. What he is is a person who learns paradigmatically. For What I mean by that is very early in the first book, somebody says he's a polymath in what way? And he says, we, you and I walk around and we see a hammer and that's all it is. He sees a hammer. He sees a pendulum bob. He sees a, um, uh, if he knows the 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 approximate length, he sees a ruler. He, he does not see in predetermined categories. He sees objects, he sees situations, and he has a sort of um, an unconstrained context in which to see them. So habits of his habit of thought is essentially to keep his thought broad, which allows him to see things, to see paradigms just in, in you know, that exists all around us. The same thing that keeps our, our bodies moving, which is called you know, homeostasis, the same thing that keeps a pendulum moving, the same thing that actually allows a gyroscope to spin and, and sort of yet right itself is the same principle of, of essentially dynamic equilibrium. There's, there's range bands and things persist by operating inside those range bands and it follows usually a sine wave or some combination of sine right. waves. And so this is, that's a way of sort of um, creating a graphic image of the way his mind works. He is always looking for the sine wave without even being aware he's looking for the sine wave. So you couple that, he comes up with, I would say he's best known for a lot of innovative solutions, blending from different areas. The other thing is that he's, um, he tends to, um, he makes mistakes. He makes them once. That's part of the learning aspect right. of it. And his, the fact that he doesn't have, he's not heavily committed to a worldview, which also makes trouble for him. As a matter of fact, one of the things that goes in the series, and we see it here, is that if you're a good liaison to other species or cultures, to make that immediately relevant, very often you then begin to have problems with certain elements of your own species or culture, which is you don't, if you smell them well enough that quickly, I'm not sure you're really one of us. And this is actually one of, the, one of the ways he makes relationships across the species is because regardless of how different the species is, the liaison character, the liaison function has the same social impact. 
That's one of the things that is constant. It's one of the few constants across the very few intelligent species there are. So in this book, this is a, this is a, a classic, well, classic. I, I shouldn't use the word classic. <laughs> no. But it is, it is something that I've done more than a few times, which is um, I will take a bunch of ideas. In this case, probably this, in many ways, the, the environment of this planet in some ways is more punishing than Dune. Um, because although Dune has, uh, one of the things in this environment is something that essentially begins to destroy life if it is, if it is not asexual, if it has a, a sexual transition period in its life cycle, that creates a, a, if you will, a hormonal trigger that activates a microbe that's pervasive. And there's only one species that is immune to it because it reproduces by uh, it's essentially a um it, it spawns things it is a uh, it, it deposits not so much egg, it, it deposits already fertilized eggs which don't go through a sexual maturation phase and these are not very nice up creatures to put it right. lightly uh because essentially their reproduction and their their reproduction and their hunt is connected because they leave they leave these these spores in a live creature. That's how. So, like, like certain wasps do that, for instance, right. flies. So, uh, this is the environment into which they've jumped. This is my opportunity to explain, explore the cultures that evolved there, based which are in many ways clearly somebody was messing around with the human race. They left various examples of us there, and uh, and what that does. What sort of cultures when when it's so? What does that mean? Something you wouldn't necessarily think of. Wood wood is virtually non-existent. Most trees have a sexual reproductive phase. There are a few that are parthenogenetic. Those actually last long enough to grow. So there's that constant science coming in. But it means when you don't have wood, fire becomes very, very difficult. Even, and you might get coal, you might get tar, depending on what you find, but even there, that is only because which tells us something that's the planet. If there's coal or tar, that means that at some earlier point, there was a lot of biological mass that did get compressed and we have we have that particular fossil fuel available, so it's a very very difficult environment to work metal, to grow enough to live, and they have to make their way in this in this world that has no known recognizable language, um, and is surprising them at turns. And some of the things that have been in the books earlier that were called reification by a, a species called the Kator are showing up here. Something like that right. is showing up here. It's a little bit different. But it is actually going to lead to the question of what is the agency. We know that there's something that's in the first 50 pages, uh, 100 pages of Fire with Fire, that one of the Katora puts their finger in this little vial, squishes something, and it is able to disrupt. The Katora is able to disrupt the essentially, essentially a 22nd century pacemaker in one of our, in one of our heroes' chests. How? And, and uh, all I'm going to say is if it looks like spooky action at a distance, well, stay tuned. I have an answer for that. Absolutely. And, it's, and that's what sparked my question to you about the seeding because of you know, how, that, how that happened there. And your whole, when I read the first book and now this last book here, and it's, um, it's one of those things, if you, if you enjoy, there, there's definitely the, the suspense that goes through it and and. Riordan is just, he's a cool dude. And, and what I like about him is that he does try to think in terms of the greatest good, you know, for not just himself, but for his team. Um, 
and also for his his species too, you know. But he gets along really well because you take a look at all the people that are, or all the beings that are on board when the uh, starship, you know, goes, you know, belly up, and they have to to jump onto the planet. But there's all these, he's got all these different people, and he's a, he seems to be the one that can actually diffuse, work with, inspire all of them. So he does have that ability to do that. But and he's a moral compass. Yeah, you know. You get that from the very beginning, from the very first when he comes out of his, well, I, remember, I remember it was cryogenic, whatever it was, when yeah. he gets brought back to, yeah. you know, however many years in the future after whatever happened to him on the moon and seeing what he saw and that whole thing there. I was like, who is this guy? And then he starts trying to shoot him at, as he's coming in. It's like, yes, yeah, his first is thing this? is he will give you your life back if you go on a secret mission to find out if we've actually encountered alien artifacts. First thing that happens when he gets off is it's a pot shot. And the thought that goes through his mind is essentially a, a, a slightly less snarky version of what did they not understand about the word secret? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, it's a very fun. I really enjoyed the first book and uh, the seventh book, you know, getting through this whole series. I missed the, the middle one. Well, this there. is the sixth book. The sixth book, rather. Yeah. The seventh book is the one that's come, about ready yeah, to come December. out. December. Yeah. So, again, if you if you always hard science fiction, which, and I'm all over the, the board on what I read, you know, so it's, it's a real refreshing break to be able to just get good old-fashioned hard science fiction, but with people that you can really, you know, learn to love, you know. And it's very much written in, a, I think, with modern sensibilities. Modern, you know, the bottom line was I am not trying to emulate the fiction styles or the certainly the cultural presuppositions of what is normally associated with the golden era. Not all of the individuals were like that, but in this case, we're you know, but there were a lot of questions. There was a lot. There was some. There was some baby that got thrown out with that bathwater, and I think there are that there were very very valuable questions about our place in the universe. Elron Hubbard was asking these. His friend Robert Heinlein was asking these questions. Poole Anderson was asking these questions. H.B. Fife was asking these questions. H.B. Um, Piper. And, uh, and I think that in, in the rush to modernize style, we've strayed away from some really interesting and still incredibly pertinent. Those questions have not diminished in pertinence one bit. You might say they've increased because every passing year shows us that that might be a part of our future. The more it, that likely that becomes, these are not just random questions of potential interest. They, they slowly accrue greater urgency. It's because, and this will be my, I guess, my last thing. If you don't like reading a book with aliens, fine. Because these aliens are also designed to stand in for what might happen in a transhuman future. If the aliens become us, because we live on different worlds, we grow up in the 0.35 gravity equivalent of Mars, and now you've got people who probably can't come back to Earth. The Expanse does this in a way, oh, I think it's a wonderful series, but it has to do it in a way that works for TV. I'm not constrained by TV. Right. So I go right for the nitty gritty and the real hard choices and hard concerns. So if you don't like aliens, don't let that stop you. There's still a tale here for you. Absolutely. So with that, I thank you very much, Chuck. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And I, and I know that people that, that w aspire to be able to write hard science fiction are going to get a lot out of this interview. And thanks so much for having me. I look forward to talking to you again, John. Thanks, everybody, for, for tuning in. And uh, John did not ask me to say this, but I think that podcasts where you get to hear people not just pump their works or not just speak in, in sort of 
long lofty terms that aren't connected to anything. The the sort of happy medium of that is a rare is a rare and endangered species in the in the podverse. This is this is a planet that you can inhabit for a lot of fun and a lot of value. I do. Great, thank you. And to, to find out more about you, they go to? They, uh, they can go to Bain.com. Bain handles almost all my books. You can go, uh, I would say the best place is Facebook. Um, I, I try to be more involved in a fewer number of platforms. There's a group page. It is the Kane Riordan group page, but it's, I don't moderate it. It's reader moderated, reader run. Uh, there's no politics on it. I've never had to use a ban hammer. It is, a, it is about the series. It is about hard SF. It is about science. And it is about the, some of the consequences of that. And I think a lot of people have said they like it simply because it's a, a little bit of an oasis in an, in an Internet that is exploding with uncivil behavior and, and political saber rattling. And you don't get any of that here. That's great. Again, thank you very much, Chuck. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy.